HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate Company, a manufacturer of slate cheese boards, coasters, and other fine items. For more information, visit brooklynslate.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with New York Times bestselling author Diane Mott-Davidson. Um, I have been kind of obsessed with the whole enchilada, her latest book. <laughs> it, it dropped into my hands. I don't even know how it came to me, but now I can't live without it. Um, and I've been backtracking to how, how many titles do you have now? 16? 17th. Seven, Seven, the whole enchilada is the 17th. It is, it's, it's amazing. And just finding out about it now, I, I feel like I, I haven't lived my life yet. So uh, I'm oh glad <laughs> to finally be introduced to you as well as uh, Goldie, uh, the uh, amazing, you know, uh, caterer slash sleuth of, of your novels. But uh, you are... Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I mean, you are kind of... Uh, the Agatha Christie of the culinary world. Um, oh my goodness! <laughs> I'm sure you've heard all those kind of accolades and uh, uh, comparisons, but really, it, it's kind of an amazing genre, niche. And I wonder how yes, it, it, it got started for you. I mean, wh- where did you grow up? What was food in your life? Actually, my father was in the navy, and so we moved around quite a bit, and. We're always having different kinds of food. And my mother was from Boston, actually born there and brought up there. And so we always had um, brown bread and baked beans, which were a real special <laughs> dish for us. Yeah. And uh, corned beef on St. Patrick's Day and you know, so on and so forth. But um, when I was 12, I got a scholarship to a... An Episcopal school in Charlottesville, Virginia, it's still there, St. Anne's Belfield, it's called now. It used to be St. Anne's, all girls, now it's co-ed. And my father at that point was at the Pentagon, 
And you could not imagine that 110 miles between Washington, D.C. and Charlottesville, Virginia, would be so far, because I had never had Southern cooking before. Yeah. And it was just a different continent from Washington, D.C., truly. Yeah. And I loved that food, too. I thought it was fabulous with the sausage and grits and black-eyed peas and stewed tomatoes and so many dishes I had never heard of that were so important to Southern cuisine, and I just loved it. You know, I think that starts to beg the question whether or not writing followed food or food followed writing. Um, With this uh, fascination already uh, of cuisine, of, of, of these dishes, I mean, where did those paths cross? Where did you want to become a writer and food got folded in? Well, I wanted to be, actually, it was my 10th grade teacher at St. Anne's who encouraged me to be a writer, and she's sadly dead now, Emil Jenkins. But she told me, look, you need to be a writer. That's what you need to do. And But it took me a while to come around to what she saw when I was yeah. 14. And so, um, you know, I went to college, got married, went to graduate school, and you know, eventually did volunteer work, and I tutored in a correctional facility, and I was a rape victim counselor. And uh, in the course of all this, I thought, you know, I never did what my high school English teacher encouraged (laughs) me to do. And, you know, maybe I need to do this. And so I started on I took a class, and I loved it. I took another class, and I loved it, but it took me a long time. I wrote short stories that I sent to the New Yorker and the Atlantic and so on, and finally thought, well, I want to write a novel. So I wrote one novel, and I wrote another novel, and I kept sending them out. And what happened was that one editor said, look, if you want to write a mystery, because both of those first two novels now, thankfully, unpublished, um, (laughs) had crimes in them, and and this editor is now sadly dead also, but she said, look, go and outline some mysteries that you like. So this is where people who want to become writers can really use their academic skills. You know, outline what it is you like to write and what I like to read. And so that's what I did. So what book, what books did you go towards? I know you've referenced um, yeah. Robert Parker kind of being an influence. That's uh, right. Yeah. I loved reading Robert B. Parker because in Spencer always cooks. Yeah. And I noticed that, um, that he would uh, go out and be this you know, sleuth and be looking at crime and be involved with the action and so on, but he would think about the crime while he was in the kitchen. I know. I, I had seen and, the, the television show, what was it, Spencer for Hire. Um, right. And I, I don't think I realized until now how often he was in the kitchen. Right. Well, in the books, it just seemed to me that he would go out and be an action hero and then come back and saute veal cutlets. And <laughs> as he was sprinkling lime juice over them, he would think, oh, you know what? I need to look at this. And then I loved a book called, I love baseball anyway, so I, I love a mystery called Strike Three, You're Dead by Richard Rose. Oh, yeah. And a uh, fabulous book, and that was the one that I outlined. And it's at 17 pages, single space. And, and also at that time, 
what our one of our children was in preschool, so I would take him to preschool, and I would only have two hours. So instead of going home, and you know, this is before answering machines, you know, the, listening to the phone ring and all that, I would go to this cafe that was sort of a bistro and but also a very upscale catering um, operation, and I saw these very wealthy people come in and you know, order these elaborate meals. And I thought, that's interesting. So I put a caterer into the book I was writing at the time, which became Catering to Nobody. I made her a background character. And my critique group, which I also encourage people who want to become writers to join, said, look, this caterer is your main character. So I didn't know anything about catering. I knew I loved to cook, although it was a long, winding road for me (laughs) to become a cook. Because I couldn't cook at all when Jim and I got married. But anyway, um, I went to this caterer and I said, okay, look, I will cook, I will work for you for free if you'll teach me about catering. And he said, come right into my kitchen. (laughs) So so that's how I got started. And I went out with um, the team on jobs. And um, it was so much more exhausting than I thought it would be that I could not believe it. Yeah, but and I, I love how. So I took notes. To under- every time I was working on a book, I would go out and do a new event, like do a wedding reception or, you know, do a fundraising dinner, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's just so great to hear, you know, that, that immersion that, you know, you're, you're in a sense staging at, at a catering company to learn more about writing about a sure. caterer. Yes. And, you know, yes. uh, a fact that we haven't pointed out to, uh, you had mentioned, you know, you had written a couple of short stories, novels. You didn't get your first yes. book picked up until after 40. Um, yes. Which, you know, and we hear about so many career changers in the culinary industry right now. Um, people, sure. you know, opening restaurants and, and people going to cooking school uh, as a second, third, fourth career. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just so interesting to find that, you know, later in your life, this is where you kind of wove all those passions together. That's exactly right. The thing is, I, I began writing shortly after turning 30. It just took me a long time to um, write a novel that was publishable. And that's also what I say to people who want to become writers. is Think of, it, think of writing as being like exercise. Maybe you don't really want to do it, or when you start out, you, you know, you run out of breath pretty quickly. But um, but it's still important to exercise every day, and it's important to write every day. And, you know, I don't know how much money there is in culinary careers right now, but I do believe that we can always improve the meals that we have at home and, uh, you know, not rely on you know, the industrial food industry, but to say, okay, what kind of simple things can I prepare at home that will be delicious? And we have that for our whole lives. Yeah. You know, and that's what I love about the book, too. It, it's not really an underlying theme. It's a pretty overt thing that, you know, the mm-hmm. quality of food is important to you, too. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Well, that was the first thing that I learned from John William Shank, who's the caterer whom I, you know, trailed around learning from. Um, He said the caterers have access to ingredients that ordinary people don't have access to. But the thing that, that's what he said when I started out learning how to cater, which was like in the late 80s. But now, 
many more of those ingredients that only caterers and restaurants could get. Those ingredients are available to the home cook, which is fabulous. Yeah. You know, really. Do you remember the first dishes you helped prepare uh, with John? Well, uh, you know, I do because when you are a home cook, you you know, you you, um, plan meals and you do your grocery shopping and so on and so forth. And so you make, you know, manicotti or something like that with a salad and bread for, you know, your family's dinner. When I would arrive at John's Kitchen, it was the very first day I arrived, I had to make green beans vinaigrette for 40 people. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought, okay, so what's fun about this? Yeah. And And then you're moving on to the next thing where you're doing a great deal of prep and, you know, making these. And, you know, it's interesting because... When you make a family meal, you have the preparation, which I enjoy, um, the serving of it, which I enjoy, maybe the cleaning up I don't enjoy so much. (laughs) But anyway, you have all those. But the main thing is that you complete the cycle, that people say, this is wonderful, this was so much fun, and you have so much social learning going on at the dinner table, and, and it's great. Catering and in writing. You do all this work during the day, but you don't complete the cycle. You know, in other words, the party isn't until the next night or the night after that, the day after that. With writing, you're working on a book for a year or a year and a half, and then it's published. And then you complete the cycle and people consume it, so to speak. So, it, you know, the catering and writing are much more similar than cooking and writing. In my opinion. Well, we're going to take a quick bra- uh, break and then come back and talk about your, your illustrious caterer, Goldie Schultz, oh. the, the, <laughs> the woman behind the you know, culinary murder mysteries. You've been listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Brooklyn Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hedeka. After visiting Christy's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn. They found a number of purposes for the slate and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. They now make regular trips to the family quarry in upstate New York to handpick their favorite pieces of black and red slate. Some of the slate is sourced from the quarry graveyard, a collection of odd-shaped pieces that were ultimately destined to be ground for use as road cover or baseball diamonds. They then transport the pieces to their studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where they do additional cutting and clean the stone to be food slate. Every single piece of packaging that comes with their products, from the envelope to the burlap bag, can be repurposed for other uses. The end result is a product completely unique in cut, shape, color, and overall presentation. For more information and to order, visit brooklynslate.com. Now through December, enjoy 10% off your purchase at brooklynslate.com with discount code HERITAGE. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Diane Mott-Davidson, the woman behind 17 amazing culinary murder mystery books. Um, 
you know, I want to talk about Goldie. Uh, <laughs> it's it's amazing that she kind of was this subsidiary character in your first novel, catering to nobody, and now what? Yeah, almost yeah. twenty three years later, because that was published in nineteen ninety. Right. Seventeen books later. Goldie is a has a cult following, uh, kind of like a lot of celebrity <laughs> chefs. I mean, people are waiting for the next, you know, uh, novel, next book to come out and see what Goldie's going to get into, uh, you know, figure out, uh, but also cook. Um, let's talk about Goldie for a second, because you know, I again, like Agatha Christie, she's kind of like the Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple. Yeah. Um, you know, how did you develop that character? How did you create an arc? Sure. Well, one thing, when I, you know, when we go to the refrigerator to take out ingredients to cook up a meal, what I say is that a writer goes to the emotional refrigerator to take out <laughs> ingredients to cook up a book. And what I had noticed, Michael, in my volunteer work was um, that, the women that I worked with, and this was pre-OJ, mind you, we're talking middle-class women, and I kept running into this phenomenon of the battered wife. And this was like in my political party. This was in the church. This was in the League of Women Voters. And one of the women I worked with, um, who was my right-hand woman in my political party, said, I was the caucus chair, and she said, look at where my husband broke my thumb in three places with a hammer. And her husband was a social worker. Yeah. And a friend who was um, married to an engineer, and the engineer beat her up, and a um, relative married to a doctor, and the doctor beat her up, and this just went on and on and on. And and so this was in my emotional refrigerator, that I wanted Goldie to be someone who had survived this and now was thriving. And so that's where Goldie came from that she was going to be this strong character. and um, But also that cooking helped to heal her. The cooking for others helped to heal her. And she has, when the series begins, she has an 11-year-old son who, when the whole enchilada opens, is 17 years old. Yeah. And so, and their relationship has gone through all these ups and downs. And we have three sons, so I have plenty of material. <laughs> So that's where Goldie came from. But I am happily married. And my poor husband, you know, we've been married since 1969. And he rarely comes to book events with me because inevitably someone comes up to him and says, are you the jerk? And he says, no. So, you know, he has suffered. But anyway, that's where Goldie came from. You know, and in the whole enchilada, um, Goldie, her friend Marla, as well as Holly, three mm-hmm. of the main characters, are in a group together of battered wives called yeah. Amor Anonymous. Um, and, right. you know, with that, they find their strength. And, you know, in in, in that companionship, uh, they also share a lot of meals and, you know, a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, riches through food. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you know, the murder mystery part of it all. It's 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 fascinating because obviously as as a food show as a food person I was drawn by that, mm-hmm. but I'm even more smitten right now with how sh- these stories evolve and how Goldie you know tries to figure out things, but intertwines that with you know trying to figure out recipes and trying to figure out people through their foods. Sure. Yes, that's right. Well, actually, the idea for this book came from my doctor. 
And, <laughs> you know, um, there was one time when I was talking to him about, you know, what would kill someone and how long it would take. <laughs> and we were out in the hall of his, you know, physician's practice, and he was saying, well, you could use this. And um, um, I said, well, how long would that take, you know? And... Um, Um, how long would this take? How long would that take? And then the lady who handles the insurance referrals came out into the hall and said, do I need to call the police? (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, um, see, it's a small town where Goldie is, Aston Meadow, Colorado, which is based on my own small town of Evergreen, Colorado. And so it's a certain kind of mystery. It's a traditional mystery where the town actually plays, is almost a character in the book and um, in all the books. And and we actually do have a lake there, uh, which, you know, this summer we had the floods and so on, and but the book was already out. But, you know, the weather in that part of the world plays a significant um, part in the books. Yeah. But anyway, so yes, they're all they're all in the group together, but Goldie is not, you know, a criminologist or you know a private detective. She doesn't do DNA analysis. What she looks at is the relationships between people in her small town, and, and as a caterer, it's, it's very interesting. It was very interesting to me going out on these catering jobs. But the caterer was. Invisible, you know, it, it, the same kind of invisible that a servant often is, and people would say things in my presence about other people at the party that mm-hmm. I simply—it it was as if I—I I was deaf. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, "This is great. This is perfect. This is the perfect position for an amateur sleuth to be in." Yeah. Amateur sleuth, but professional cook, and I want to get to you know some yeah. uh, some of the meat. I mean the from enchilada suisse yeah. sauce to not so skinny spinach yeah. dip, Julian's fudge with yeah. sun dried cherries and toasted pecans. Um, you know your first dozen or so books had recipes within the story itself, and now it's right. kind of like a cookbook at the end of the book. You know, a collection right. of recipes. Now, again enchiladas being such a main focus as well as the titular you know feature of this book did you think enchilada first and then evolve the cuisine within the book from that or did you write the story and then plug in food well i'm I'm always sort of developing both at the same time michael to be perfectly honest and i was intrigued with the idea that you know, actually, the word enchilada comes the, the chile it was inside of the tortilla, yeah, and um, and that's you know why it's like uh, chile within something, yeah. But um, that's how it started. But then you had different kinds of fillings, and um, the Swiss enchiladas were popularized. You know, I learned from Rick Bayless. <laughs> um, to buy the, at the Sanborn coffee shops in, that were opened by and catered to the Swiss, Swiss people living in Mexico or visiting Mexico. Huh. And so that's why it's dairy rich um, with um, cheese and crema, you can make, which is creme fraiche, um, which you can make yourself, and I put the recipe in there. But a lot of people will just use 
commercial sour cream. Yeah. And our daughter-in-law is Mexican-American, so um, she gave me her grandmother's tortilla recipe. And so I, I made, you know, made the tortillas and so on, and pretty soon it was becoming a very labor-intensive <laughs> recipe, which people don't really like. And um, my taste testers actually preferred the store-bought corn tortillas to my corn tortillas. <laughs> like, thanks a lot. Yeah. But anyway, um, uh, so um, that's where the enchilada suizas came from, is that I was just always testing this um, enchilada recipe that had a dairy-rich filling with chicken and then with a sauce that was um, the mild chilies that most Americans are used to, and tomatoes. Now, with... Again, Pardon me? With 17 books and, you know, mm-hmm. plenty of recipes per book, you must have a couple favorites. Um, well, we do. We do. Actually, the family really... Well, first of all, um, my kids are the first testers. <laughs> and um, what I learned, actually, from our priest in um, in Evergreen was that... I, I know this would probably never be allowed now, but that for the kids who were going to be confirmed when they were 11, 12 years old... He would have them taste test different wines. I told you this would never happen today. But what they what the kids preferred was muscatel, and so that's what we always had in our parish was muscatel for the communion wine. But um, anyway, what he told me was that children have much more sensitive taste buds, and and I think he was right. And so when our kids were growing up, I would make several different kinds of cookie several different kinds of cheesecake or whatever, and when the kids would have slumber parties or they would go to slumber parties, then they would vote on index cards for their favorite cookies and or cheesecake or whatever. And one year I was the soccer mom who brought the snacks after every soccer game, <laughs> and then I would ask the kids, cheesecake A or cheesecake B? And so that's how we ended up with the cheesecake that's in the Last Supper. Oh, it's, it's, um, I could just picture you being the favorite mom amongst all the school kids. That, go, <laughs> well, we're going to go. We're going to have that. dinner at Diane's but, um, house. They always expected, you know, something, and, and I gave it to them. Yeah. But anyway, the point is that with the, those enchilada suizos, that's what the kids, our kids, our grown kids now, they're grown, asked for for their birthdays. Yeah. You know. That they that they what do you want for your birthday dinner? I said, oh, the enchilada suizas. Um, and then another family favorite is the uh, snowboarders pork tenderloin, um, which is several books back. But it's easy, and you marinate the um, pork tenderloin overnight, but only over one night. And then they all love the stained glass sweet. Um, glass sweet bread, I think I call it, which has, um, yes, it's been so many books ago, it's hard <laughs> for me to remember. People will ask me, now whatever happened to, <laughs> I, I have no idea, <laughs> you know, or what, what was the, what was, what castle did you base the castle on? And, oh, I'm like, oh my goodness, please don't. <laughs> but I, I remember now, it was Bodiam Castle in England, where I actually had the floor plan and never visited yeah. for this. Um, particular book, which was Sticks and Scones, and Sticks and Scones is where the um, um, the, the stained glass sweet bread is. So, you know, so those those are really the family favorites. Yeah, 
and you know lastly wordplay is just amazing i mean uh, these are oh, the titles of the books. Uh, Dying for Chocolate, The Serial Murders, The Last Supper's Killer Pancake, Prime Cut, Tough Cookie, again, Sticks and Scones, Dark Tort. I mean, uh, uh, obviously they're a little tongue-in-cheek, but right. you know, they, they are so emphatic about what kind of person you are, uh, um, what kind of person Goldie is, and how fun these stories are to read. Oh, Michael, you're so kind. Thank, Thank you. you. And I just remembered that the snowboarder's pork tenderloin is from Tough Cookie. Excellent. So. Thank you for bringing that up. And I couldn't believe that no one had used the title, The Serial Murders. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) I need to do this. So, I mean, I'm sure you get asked all the time, and you've been producing for so many years, is there another book coming out? Because I know a couple new people were introduced. Ooh, excellent. What I have found, because I have a contract for a cookbook, and it's interesting because what I have found is that writing a cookbook is very different from writing a novel. Yeah. And I find it actually very challenging. And so um, I promised the publisher, HarperCollins, that I would do a section on low-carb recipes. And I struggled and struggled and struggled with this. And finally I decided, because Marla, Goldie's best friend, and the other ex-wife of the jerk, um, has just lost 30 pounds on a low-carb diet, what made it much easier for me was to write the introduction to that chapter from Marla's voice. So that's what I'm working on now. Oh, excellent. And, um, and so that's, that's why I thought, well, I'm going to write the cookbook, and then I'll see about the series, yeah. and we'll see what's going on. Well, excellent. I'll be uh, looking for that book next. I mean, I have 16 other books after this one to read now. Uh, you got me hooked, oh. and uh, I'm going to have to Thanks. you know, read all about Goldie's Wonderful Recipes. But, Diane, thank you so much uh, for being thank on. Thank you, Michael. And... Thank, Thank you. you so much for creating a character like Goldie. Um, you know, it, Thank you. it's so charming and delightful to have someone you know that has a common thread throughout a whole bunch of novels, uh, a whole bunch of books, but that keeps on delivering such delicious things. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. <laughs> no thank problem. you. Excellent. Well, you've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.